Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. This show is part of the book club series where we feature a book each month and have a conversation with some of the incredible authors in our network. Enjoy the conversation and you can check out all of the great books and resources on our website www.redletterchristians.org. Y'all, uh, I think some of us may be from the, the Christian liturgical tradition. It's Palm Sunday, which we were talking this morning about uh, what a powerful thing it is to uh, some of the uh, the, the uh, themes of Kristen's book uh, are very relevant to Palm Sunday when Jesus did not enter Jerusalem on a stallion and a war horse with an entourage of soldiers, but rode in on a borrowed little baby donkey <laughs> to kind of uh, be this beautiful parody of power, uh, sort of a photobomb to all of our militarism and power was that uh, Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. So uh, it's, it's kind of cool that this worked out to be on Palm Sunday. Uh, as folks keep trickling in, let me go ahead and say that I am really, really pumped that we have Rachel and Benjamin here uh, who are both going to be translating ASL. Um, and they may be, we're, they're coming in in a second. Um I think we're figuring that out, right? The, the, the sign language piece of this. So we've got translation for those that are deaf and hearing impaired. We've done that at a bunch of our larger events, but uh, we're new at doing this at some of the, the um, book club events. So hopefully this will become a regular thing. But thank you, Rachel and Benjamin, for being here. Um, and incidentally, I, I kind of want to put you on the spot, Benjamin, but I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. But ben, Benjamin heard that this, about the book that we're doing and got so stoked because he had uh, read the book and was familiar with it. So they're both here, not just because they uh, believe in translating, but also it feels like they really vibe and resonate with the conversation. So it's Kristen. That's also a great compliment to your book. So uh, let me go ahead and introduce Kristen as well who is kind of a new friend of mine. We've been, we've sort of known about each other for a while. We've done a few events together, but this is, I hope, the beginning of all kinds of cool collaborative work that we can do together. And uh, Kristen Dumay uh, is our guest, you know, author that we're celebrating this month. And her latest book is Jesus and John Wayne which I've got right here. Kristen, I got to tell you, like, I'm, you know, they're active listeners. I'm um, an active reader. So like, I just shredded it with, <laughs> with like notes in the margins. I've got pages that are tacked, which means I'd like to quote that in a book that I'm writing, you know, so I, <laughs> I love it. I'm, I'm all over it, but thank you so much for being here. I'm just thrilled about the conversation we're going to have. Oh, thank you. And I, I should say, I have known about you a lot longer than you have known about me. And so, uh, you know, Irresistible Revolution long ago, but really just, I mean, you've been a beacon, I think, within evangelicalism more broadly for such a long time. So it's an honor it's, it's, and it's a privilege. It's going to be such a good conversation. And we're watching the chat, y'all, too. We're also kind of trying our best. Chris, uh, Kristen Snow is watching uh, Facebook. So, Please tell us where you're from. Tell us, you know, some of y'all held your book up. You can do that again. That's pretty great if you've got it with you. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll try to keep an eye on some of the questions and be as interactive as we, we can be. Um, and this is a series that we've been doing at Red Letter Christians, y'all. We started this this year, partly because of the pandemic, uh, but also we just thought, man, there's so many great folks that it's fun to read books together. So let's take advantage of... Um, the technology that, you know, two years ago, I don't think many of us use Zoom like we do now, but um, we're able to get together like this. So we we started uh, earlier this year. I think you know this, Kristen, that we did Jamar Tisby's book, uh, which is, was wonderful. Uh, and then we had Brenda Salter McNeil and we're, we're having uh, Jesus and John Wayne this this month. I'll tell you all at the end again, but we're next month going to have Anthea Butler, Dr. Butler, White Evangelical Racism. This is going to be our book for uh, April. Um, but I, I want you first, Kristen, I know a little of your history. And I, I thought it was fantastic that uh, you, met, you mentioned Dort because <laughs> that's a school that I, I mean, you know, a lot of people haven't heard of, but. <laughs> 
I went to Dort right after, I believe it was right after Trump did his infamous line of I could kill, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose support. He said that on the stage there. So this is your stomping ground, right? My place, my home. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Sioux Center, Iowa. So I went to Dort. My dad was a theology professor there. And yeah, that's my home. That's my my space. So uh, that's how I opened uh, this book, Jesus and John Wayne. But yeah, I grew up there. Uh, you know, people ask all the time if I am an evangelical or if, if I consider myself one. And that's always a tricky question because I grew up in this little Dutch reformed enclave, right? This kind of immigrant community. And so um, we actually kind of identified against evangelicalism when I was growing up, you know, like that's not who we are. We're a little bit smarter, <laughs> a little bit more intellectual, right? That was, uh, you know, kind of what I grew up with. Um, and that said, I was, I was fully immersed in the evangelical popular culture right bookstores and I only listen to Christian music never the secular radio things like that so one foot in one foot out um so yeah I uh, went to Dort ended up going to University of Notre Dame uh, for a PhD in history and then after a, a couple of stops along the way ended up at at Calvin University where I still teach I think it's it's really helpful for folks to hear a little bit of that backstory because you're not just a scholar studying evangelicalism. I mean, this is your people. You grew up immersed in this world. So I, I, I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about how that backdrop has framed, you know, shaped who you are, but in the bones that you spit out, you know, that from that. But um, I think I think it's important for people to hear that, you know, really authentic backdrop from you of, of you know, this is this is something you're not just studying, but you, it, you know, you've been shaped by it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that in my own backstory explains a little bit the approach that I take in this book, which is that there's more to evangelicalism than just theology, right? There's more to evangelicalism than just kind of checking off beliefs, because I'm a confessional Christian, and, you know, grew up in a very kind of conservative tradition. And uh, still, when I went off to graduate school, even though I went to Notre Dame, um, <laughs> that's where I met kind of real evangelicals, uh, because a lot Lot of evangelical students were coming to study with my advisor, George Marston, kind of the historian of evangelicalism at the time. And they were coming from Moody Bible Institute. They were coming from Bob Jones. They were coming from Wheaton. Like they were coming from the real evangelical strongholds. And so I got to know evangelicalism in part through them. And, and really, again, my places of connection were um, uh, the popular culture. Uh, and that's, mm. that's where I thought, okay, yes, yes. I know what you're talking about, even though, you know, I had to kind of figure out who Bob Jones was coming from my neck of the woods uh, as it was. But, um, yeah, so I think that that probably explains a little bit that there's, there's theology that you can hold in common, but then there's cultural experience that you can share or, or be, be somewhat alien to. And so I think that also explains some of the questions that I brought to this book and how this book is a different kind of history of evangelicalism than many that had been written before, which tend to focus more on kind of the intellectual traditions, the theologies, the institutions. And this is very much a popular history of evangelicalism. Absolutely. And, and when you, uh, you know, I, I heard I, one of my mentors told me when you write, you should write because you can't not write, like let the books choose you. And you really feel like as you're flipping through these pages that, that this is the fire in your bones, you know, as Jeremiah said. So say a little bit more about like how you knew that this um, book needed to be written and, you know, why it kind of was, was the song you needed to sing right now. So that came through, did it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> It was an obsession. Um, so, so the the roots of this book actually go back more than fifteen years. Uh, my my first or second year as a new prof at Calvin, I was teaching a U.S. survey course. And uh, you kind of scrambling, just fresh out of grad school. And so I decided to lecture one day on Teddy Roosevelt. And I thought it would be a really great way to show my Calvin students how gender worked in history, especially how masculinity worked. That masculinity changed over time and it was connected to economic shifts and it was connected to race and to religion and foreign policy and militarism. And so I, I gave this great little lecture on Roosevelt. And then uh, right after class, a couple guys came up to me and and they said, Professor Dumay, there's this book that you have to read. And actually keep it right here. Uh, <laughs> this was the book, John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. 
So I, I literally went off to Family Christian Bookstore for $21.99, picked up a copy, and I opened it up and I saw exactly what they were talking about. Um, Eldridge opens his book with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt and then goes on to sketch, uh, much like Roosevelt, uh, this kind of militant conception of you know Christian manhood. And, uh, you know, God is a warrior God and every man is made in his image. Um, every man has a battle to fight. And, um, so I thought, huh, that's interesting. And, and this was, um, back in 2005 or 2006. And, uh, I discovered that this was just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, his book went on to sell more than 4 million copies. And then there were dozens, if not hundreds of other books that were saying much the same thing, um, by that time. Uh, this was also the early years of the Iraq war. And so at the same time as I was reading this militant Christian masculinity literature, I was seeing this survey data coming out that white evangelicals were far and away more supportive of the Iraq war, of preemptive war in general, more likely than any other Americans to condone the use of torture, to embrace an aggressive foreign policy. And I was just sitting with that. And then I, I just ask the question, what might one have to do with the other? Uh, so I started researching this a long time ago. Mm. Uh, and then I set it aside, um, partly because what I was discovering was so disturbing. And I wasn't sure I wanted to sit with this for that long. It was deeply misogynistic. Um, it seemed anti-biblical to me. Uh, again, really disturbing. And I, I had this question, is this, is this fringe, right? Because it felt really extremist, even though I knew it was really popular. This is Mark Driscoll era and stuff. And so I thought, you know, as a Christian, is it my job to be shining this bright light on what might be the darkest underbelly of American Christianity? Mm. Um, and so I set it aside and I thought, I'll get back to it someday. And then I had a couple babies and then another baby. And then I wrote my first book on Christian feminism and, um, I, I just thought I'll, I'll get back to it at some point. And then it was the fall of 2016 in the wake of the access Hollywood tapes. Um, when, um, I, I noticed the language I was hearing around, uh, evangelicals and their support for Trump reminded me an awful lot of what I had been reading all those years ago. And so I dusted off that research and, uh, decided, uh, to write a book. And at that point, the question of kind of margins or mainstream, uh, was clearer to me and also the urgency of the project was, and I think that's mm. the urgency that you sensed at that point. Totally. And, uh, and I want to say to folks, you know, that are listening in, if some of these names or this, this is new to you, that's awesome. You know, I mean, they, they we're, we're, we'll explain some of the, the names and terms. We're going to dig a little bit deeper. And I, I told Kristen, I'm um, doing this broadcast tonight from my um, sister and brother-in-law's house who go to the same church as Franklin Grand. So we're all kind of like processing this in a lot of different ways. So um this is a safe place tonight. So just keep leaning into the conversation. And I, you know, Kristen, as I, as I was reading, one of the things that I I've read quite a bit from uh, uh, folks that are looking historically at evangelicalism and talk about the fault line around race, right? Like, so R Randall Balmer was on a panel that we had around abortion. Jamar Tisby was one of our guests, the color of compromise. And one of the, the things that they really help, I, I think on is that, this alignment between evangelical, white evangelical Christianity and the Republican Party um, didn't come out of nowhere. And it wasn't actually originally around sexuality and um, abortion, right? Like there was this kind of history of segregation and racism that the white evangelical church was trying to figure out how, how to navigate that. And abortion and saying, you know, sexuality became. Uh, a place that they could find some common ground, whereas on guns or nuclear weapons or other stuff, they couldn't. So, but you help fill some of the gaps out mm -hmm. on that. And I think you kind of help us see the, um, the, the masculinity, the kind of toxic masculinity piece of that. So I don't know if you want to maybe yeah. talk a little bit about how those intersect and they mm -hmm. overlap, right? It's not like it was one or the other, yeah. but I think you, you help with a really important piece of this. Yeah. You know, at first I was, I was just looking at masculinity, 
Um, but masculinity always, or gender generally always has to do with race. And, and as a scholar, I know that, but one of the things I noticed very early on when I was looking at books like Eldridge's and and other copycat books that were really popular in the early two thousands was that, um, you know, for all their talk of being Bible believing Christians, these evangelical writers weren't really drawing much on scriptures for their vision of masculinity. Um, they were looking to Hollywood heroes, to mythical warriors, um, to Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, right? To cowboys. Cowboys were a favorite, soldiers, General MacArthur, John Wayne, right, from the title of the book. And at a certain point it dawned on me, these were all white men. Um, the militant heroes that were celebrated, all white men. And many of them, white men who had proved their their uh, kind of masculine heroism um, by using violence to subdue non-white populations. So Teddy Roosevelt is a great example, the Rough Rider, right? Um, and uh, you know, so many of John Wayne's movies, right? That's his brand. And, and so that kind of clued me in. And then when I went back to history, I saw, you know, I, I, I draw on Balmer's work, I draw on Tisby's work and, and I just saw how much this um, kind of in the, in the cold war era, this kind of militant white masculinity was uh, it was linked to ideas of Christian nationalism, the idea that we need strong men to fight, to protect faith, family, and nation. So fight in the military, but also fight to defend Christianity um, domestically. And um, did, if you just take that concept of Christian America, um, and Christian nationalism, the idea that like America was a Christian nation and everything was great until things went bad. And if you kind of follow their timeline, things went bad in the 1960s, right? That only makes sense if you're a white Christian, right? It makes no sense uh, for, for black Christians at all. So you, I started just looking for kind of clues here, right? Seeing, um, seeing how family values politics uh, did emerge out of this, you know, as, as Randy Balmer has suggested, um, defending uh, white parents' rights to keep their kids in segregated schools. And so the, um, and, and they were really big on authority, um, white evangelicals, like who has proper authority and, and parents have the authority and the father has the authority. Um, but this was the authority of white parents to make choices for their kids, not the authority of black parents to make choices for their kids and the authority of white parents to keep the federal government out of their kids' education, which historical context, we're talking desegregation, right? That's what the federal government was trying to do uh, in terms of interfering with uh, their families. And so when you go into the history just a little bit, you see how central race was um, in that context. And then you have like these, uh, this, this, masculinity that somebody like, you know, John Wayne came to embody, um, both on screen and off, it was a militant mm -hmm. white masculinity, unapologetically. So law and order politics, this again, use violence to, to bring order. It was entirely a militant white masculinity. And, and I think it's worth, worth appreciating that because often this kind of gets lost because the whiteness isn't made visible, uh, within, you know, as people are describing it, but it's very, visible to those um, who are not white, who yeah, are excluded no. from this. Yeah. And as, as you're saying that, you know, one, one of the things that um, I think it's Eddie Glaude and some other folks have said it in different ways that America is not unique in its racism um, uh, in its violent history of what we did to indigenous people. But where we are unique is in the mythology yes. that we have created to justify it and to hide that and to sort of baptize it. Right. Um, yes. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in how, you know, how you pick John Wayne and, you know, some of the other mythology that you begin to unpack as like, wow, this isn't the, the history that really was. It's the history that we wish it was, you know, like we're kind of making this up and we're, we're creating ways that we kind of mythologize this racist history. So uh, talk a little bit about why John Wayne and, you know, some of the other mythology that you unpacked became so prominent. Yeah, you know, John Wayne was not an evangelical. Need to, need to make that very clear. Even though rumors consistently spread that he, you know, over the decades that he had converted to evangelicalism, he did not. But um, 
uh, he came to symbolize this, uh, you know, rugged, almost retrograde white patriarchy and this, this militancy, this old fashioned manhood that seemed to be um, under siege by feminism. Um, you know, then we had the anti-war activists, the hippies and uh, um, plus, you know, civil rights movement, all these things really disrupting the authority of this, you know, kind of old fashioned uh, white patriarchy. And um, so John Wayne became a kind of symbol of that. He was a symbol for um, conservative Americans generally, not just for white evangelicals. In fact, I think first he was for just conservative Americans. And and he became the symbol by the 1960s, by the 1970s of, you know, his his movie Green Berets, which he directed as well, the only movie filmed during Vietnam that presented Vietnam in a heroic way. Um, And and so so he, he did become this kind of icon of conservative uh, American manhood. And evangelicals were drawn to that. And and so what we see here is this kind of um, uh, alliance that is formed between conservative white evangelicals and many secular conservatives. And the alliance is, is a cultural one as well as political, right? So a cultural ideal of, of this traditional, you know, quote unquote, traditional masculinity and then traditional femininity. And that that becomes a really powerful kind of source of unity. And out of that flows the political alliances that we see take shape with the, the rise of the religious right and the new iteration of the Republican Party. Um, but that mythology really is at the heart. And if you look for it, you see that it persists all the way up to the present, right? Uh, so just a few months ago, we had President Trump talk about this, you know, wanting a garden of American heroes. And, you know, which heroes did he want? These these kind of rugged, um, mythical, uh, uh, you know, heroic individuals, um, real or imagined um, in, in, the, in the pattern of John Wayne, of Teddy Roosevelt, of, of General MacArthur, and, and, and so on. Wow. And, and as you keep kind of tracking the trajectory of some of this, um, you, I mean, you, you mentioned a few of the ways that, that, that this kind of evangelical, white evangelical and secular cultural alliance uh, happened. And there are some, I mean, you, 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 this is what you do in, in, in your whole book is kind of paint that. But there are a few landmarks that were like, these are, this is a really definitive moment right now. Reagan was one of those, a few others. And I, I don't know if you want to maybe paint with a broad brush, a few of those that, that really concealed that alliance. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the war in Iraq might, might've been a part of that, you know, but say a little bit more about how, cause it, it does feel like a, a weird partnership, you know, strange bedfellows in yeah. some ways, but, um, and, and the way that they aligned with uh, John Wayne, even though he had been through three marriages. And I'm, I mean, you're kind of like priming the pump to the last four years, but you know, yeah. that, that, kind of yeah it's it's powerful though how those you want to mention any more of those moments where you saw that alliance kind of fortified? sure you know I um I was surprised through my research just how crucial Vietnam was right Vietnam is this pivotal period where a lot of Americans start to question American militarism. They start to question American goodness and greatness because they're seeing these reports come, you know, on the evening news and evangelicals, conservative white evangelicals double down on pro-military, pro-America, pro-war. And, you know, Billy Graham was right at the center of that. And that's one of the parts of this book, book that surprises a lot of evangelicals. I think it's a different it's a different side of Billy Graham in this, in this book than we often um, see. Um, and so Vietnam was just absolutely critical. And what I noticed when I, when I started reading evangelical books on, on, you know, Christian manhood written from the 1990s on so many of them go back to Vietnam, they open in Vietnam, they have to still wrestle with Vietnam. That that's a kind of crisis moment when they felt that they had to sustain this rugged militant American masculinity, um, but felt they were doing so in opposition to so many other Americans, right? So Vietnam was critical. Um, the opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment really did mobilize um, conservative evangelicals. I mean, Phyllis Schlafly, a Catholic, um, kind of helped lead the way there, but really linked foreign policy 
and American power to these uh, domestic issues and quote unquote traditional masculinity and femininity. Um, so that was important. Uh, you mentioned Reagan, you know, that Reagan uh, Carter election was a, a critical moment there in terms of understanding white evangelicalism. And, uh, you know, they preferred Ronald Reagan, kind of the tough guy over uh, 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 Jimmy Carter, the Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher <laughs> uh, for a variety of reasons, right? Foreign policy was key there. Um, so that's a that's an interesting moment. Uh, a couple of other moments in writing this book that I thought were really pivotal. Uh, one was the 1990s with the Promise Keepers movement, not because it was leaning into this militarism, but the opposite. On um, the Cold War had ended, uh, it, things were up for grabs. And so that's where you have a lot of experimentation. Uh, they kept saying the word confusion kept popping up in sermons and speeches and books that I was reading from the 1990s. So they were experimenting with maybe egalitarianism, maybe a kinder, gentler, you know, a soft patriarchy. We still want warriors, but we, we want tender warriors. Um, and we can hug and we can cry and we can show our emotions. Oh, and we can also pursue racial reconciliation, right? So it seems this moment of kind of promise. By the end of the 90s, a lot of conservative evangelicals are saying, no, 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 that went too far, went too far. Uh, it's getting a little too soft. We don't want tenderness anymore. Like, you know, let, let's let's swing the pendulum back. And they do. And so in 2001, in those first months, that's when we have Wild at Heart published. That's when we have Dobson's Bringing Up Boys um, published, Doug Wilson's Future Men, all embracing this really rugged testosterone-driven masculinity and those books are all on the shelves of Christian bookstores when terrorists attack the United States. And so it's September 11 that is going to just take this, like the pendulum was already swinging, but just amplifies this. And that was in, the, in those ensuing years. That's when I first realized, <laughs> kind of started paying attention to what was going on. And the militancy, the militarism just really does um, uh, you know, increase dramatically. And we're still, I think, very much living in that era today. Mm. And so just to, to pick up on a couple of uh, those themes, I, I sent you a copy of uh, my Beating Guns book, because there are so many things that you point out that I began to notice in my own upbringing. I mean, I read some of these books, but some of them, I think they weren't, uh, you know, like Wild at Heart, some of those I didn't read, but I did, um, I did grow up with guns. Yes. And I grew up very comfortable with guns. And then I began, you know, I moved to Philadelphia, spent 20 years there, saw gun violence, you know, up front. Mm -hmm. And the way I thought about guns obviously began to shift both because of my theology and of my proximity. Um, but one of the things that's stunning when I was researching for beating guns is that the highest gun owning demographic in America is white evangelical Christians. Yeah. Uh, it's like 41%, almost half of white evangelicals have guns, whereas two thirds of Americans don't have guns, right? Only a third of Americans have guns. So we own guns at a higher rate than the general population. We're responsible for almost 90% of the gun deaths are by men. We even think of these horrific recent mass shootings, you know, and, and the, that it's kind of one of the obvious manifestations of that toxic masculinity. Um, but one of the things that you point out and that I love this book, I don't know if you read, uh, um, America, uh, it was a uh, Pamela Haig's book. Uh, she, she wrote, uh, this powerful book that she said, one of the things that she says is you could look at history through the lens of male aggression, versus female conscience. And that's a powerful statement is because you think of the resistance to guns. It was women. It was moms. It still is. Moms demand action, right? You think of like um, one of the stories that I, I mentioned to you was Sarah Winchester, who inherited the entire gun industry of the Winchester family and was haunted by it was sickened by it, right? Teddy Roosevelt wanted to visit her because he was such a big fan of Winchester guns. And she was like, nah, I'm good. You know, she wouldn't meet with him. So I, I want you to say a little bit more about that, like, because I, I think that that, um, that toxic masculinity, um, it is theological, but it, you know, we see it in so many of the things that you mentioned, our tolerance for torture yeah. as evangelicals is higher. Our, our like anger at immigrants yeah. is higher as white evangelicals than the general population. So that those are haunting things to reckon with. Yeah. Support for the death penalty, as you know, right? Um, 
Yes. So it, you sent me the PDF. I actually have your book. Uh, so I just want to say, this is a beautiful book. Like it's, it's, it's not just like beautiful words, but like, how did you, how did you get your publisher to make this? It's like a magazine or so. So yes. Um, and, and, uh, you'd ask like, we were chatting before this question of, um, you know, masculinity versus a, a, a feminine conscience. And yeah, as a historian, I don't, often kind of essentialize. I just kind of look at what's in front of me. Um, so I can't say that women are by nature more, um, you know, pacifists or peace loving, or just the way in which culture has formed individuals <laughs> throughout a lot of human history, that this is kind of, um, where, where we're at. Uh, but descriptively, I think there's a lot to be said for that, right. That, um, and also just descriptively, um, not without exception. So history is about like, you see a lot of continuity, but you see a lot of change too. And so history is complicated. And as soon as you like scratch beneath the surface of some of these global statements, you'll see, oh, it's actually, it's actually, um, not always that way. Right. So, um, so one of the things I tried to do in Jesus and John Wayne was give a quick glance back to the 19th century, mostly to destabilize a little bit of this, um, because otherwise it can start to feel inevitable. Oh, boys will be boys. Right. (laughs) This is just the way men are. Oh, I guess God made them this way. And you just, you know, that's exactly the path that many of these writers on Christian manhood take. Uh, instead of you know, looking for uh, you know complexity and maybe considering the effects of sin and and all these things, so so one of the things I try to do is show in the 19th century ideals of Christian masculinity um, really uh, centered self restraint, right? a gentlemanly self restraint, rather than this like unleash the warrior kind of thing, and. Um, so, you know, it's, it's important to keep in mind that there's, there's alternative ways to be a man and to think about being a man. Um, and at the same time, throughout history, masculinity is always linked to power, right? Mm-hmm. To power and, um, and then wielding that power is often, right, it's, it's through aggression and through violence. And so there is a lot of continuity there as well. Um, and it does seem that women are often uh, kind of the the conscience of this movement, um, uh, you know, protecting their children. Uh, my first book was on Christian feminism that emerged out of uh, anti-trafficking activism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, part of the temperance movement, right? Trying to kind of um, uh, push back against uh, male abuses of power. And so throughout history, that does seem to be a thing. Um, uh, and, and like you say, up to the present day in terms of moms organizing um, that that guns in our society and, and historically too have been very closely linked to masculinity um, and um, also to whiteness, right? Who Who is allowed to wield weapons and who is not. Um, and so they're linked to a, a kind of identity. Um, and that's, that's one thing, but then we can, we can bring in the, the kind of Christian layer here too. Right. And then say, you know, what does a Christian identity do to this reality? Does it deconstruct it? Does it completely destabilize it? Does it do what the Jesus of the gospels does, which is like, that's what you think, but you know, my way is a completely different way. Um, but instead what we see in the history of white evangelicalism, the last half century is embracing that and then calling that Christian. Mm. Yeah, and, and I, I don't want to paint too broad with too broad a brush or throw all the dudes under the bus, you know, but I, I but and I know there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable with the, you know, gender framework of this. But I mean, it, it's we can't miss the way the fingerprints that this has on our society. I mean, I even think this week, right, with that image of all the dudes and the governor in Georgia signing this, you know, this bill of voter repression, suppression, and then, you know, the representative Park Cannon, African-American woman being arrested for knocking on the door, you know, trying to be that conscience as these guys are signing that. So, you know, it's still very real that that sin all the way back to Cain killing his brother Abel. And we look at, you know, like 90% of homicides committed by men. Like these, these are not just things that we can ignore that there is a, 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 maybe it is just a toxic gender dynamic or something that we, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, align with masculinity. But I I want you to talk a little bit about like some of the things that 
have happened that just reinforce uh, I, I mean, like your book came out and it's not been out long and it's hit the bestseller list. And we're still seeing the truths that you name. Uh, I mean, like I mentioned in Georgia, but also like with uh, Beth Moore leaving the Southern Baptist Convention um, and the Me Too movement, all that, you know, you're kind of you're 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 bringing us into that era. But I don't know if you want to say more about um the significance of, of what's hap- happening right now in kind of real time in some of these uh, traditionally patriarchal denominations like the Southern Baptist world. I mean, it's, it feels like it, like history is being written right now, right? It really does. It does. It's, it's a little dizzying, honestly, to be a historian. First of all, just writing a book up to the present was a new thing for me. Uh, in my first book, all the people I wrote about were long dead. And so like the past was in the past and it was stable. And as I was writing Jesus and John Wayne, you know, like the, the history was happening around me. And then I had to go through this uh, anxiety inducing period for a year where it was with my publisher and in production and, you know, watching it was happening. And we had an impeachment and we had um, a global pandemic and we had Black Lives Matter and we had all of this and all of this, these things just kind of lined up with what I had mapped out. Um, and then, of course, the election and um, uh, January 6th, the events of January 6th in particular, I think, brought um, a question of white uh, um, Christian militancy to the fore. Um, we had Beth Moore, who was in this book as one of these voices of conscience, right, uh, early on in, in, in 2016 and, and then through the Trump years. And I know she's read the book and she's commented on it a number of times and uh, come out defending it on Twitter um, and did so just a few days before she announced that she was leaving the SBC. Um, and and then, of course, we had the, the horrific Atlanta shooting um, a couple of weeks ago as well. That brings some of these questions to the fore uh, in terms of purity culture, in terms of white Christian masculinity and violence and and how much of this is, a, you know, just an individual and how much of this is is a culture. And and of course, it's it's um, it, it, those aren't mutually exclusive. So what I see happening in in white evangelical spaces right now is a kind of um, evangelical reckoning, as Ed Setzer suggested. I see that happening. Um, it, it really runs deep on an individual level. I, I, you know, I have heard since this book came out, I've received so many hundreds of letters from evangelicals themselves saying, this is the story of my life. And thank you for writing this because I never understood how all these pieces fit together. Like I did this, I bought this, I listened to this, I was formed by this, but I never really understood, um, right. Just how it all comes together. And so for those people, there are many people who are, who are deconstructing, not like their, their entire Christian faith, um, at all, actually they're, they're trying to like take off these, these cultural layers of things that had been packaged and sold as Orthodox Christianity, which they're realizing now that that's not biblical Christianity. And so, so that is, uh, it's actually a really kind of exciting moment in some ways, but what I don't see happening is I don't see institutional change. Mm-hmm. So what I see a lot of is people like Beth Moore, who are the voices of resistance, They push back, they push back, and then finally they say, this is not who I am, and they leave that space. And then their voice is no longer in that space. Mm. And I see that in churches, I see that in Christian schools, in Christian organizations, either their voices are silenced or they end up leaving. And so I'm I'm very hopeful in, in terms of the change that I see, which is real on an individual level. Um, on a broader institutional level, I'm much less hopeful. Wow. Okay, man, we might need another hour, but anyway, we're going to keep, we're going to keep digging, but I, you know, I, I want to um, keep exploring this a little bit because I see a lot of white evangelicals that are leaving that. Right. But what we keep saying at Red Letter Christians is like leaving Trump evangelicalism may not be the end of your faith. That may be the beginning of yes. your of a more authentic, yes. robust faith and theology. So, like, we need to see that the spirits at work outside of white evangelicalism. And in some ways, 
it can still be um, confining and centering of whiteness to say, I'm done with Christianity because yes. I'm done with this particular version of it. Right. So yes. I, I, I think in some ways, black women have been the conscience of our country. We think of the last election, but you even, you know, we often think about the 80, 81 percent of white evangelicals that supported Trump. What folks don't often think about as much as we should is that over 80 percent of non-white Christians were opposing Trump. Yes. Right. So, I mean, it's almost this like exact opposite yeah. mirror. So where like as you as you think of that, like you're, you're very you're very uh, legitimately a friendly critic of the white evangelical uh, contradictions and hypocrisy. But there is machismo that's in other parts of the church. I mean, there's plenty of folks that grew up in the black church that I've heard critique this, you know, uh, kind of male patriarchy. There's, you know, it's in the Latino church in a lot of places. Yes. So um, I don't know if you want to, you, you're very focused on, I think, kind of getting the log out of our own eye of white evangelicalism. But uh, if you want to say more about mm-hmm. um, how it, the fingerprints of this, this kind of masculinity are in other parts of the church, but also like, where can we find some some hope and some life, you know, as people are leaving that looking for a more authentic faith? Yeah. Um, yes, this is not um, so kind of patriarchy and even a more militant patriarchy is not exclusive to white evangelicalism, although white evangelicals, I think, um, are, are at the forefront. It's fair to say. Uh, and so I, I was paying attention to other traditions as I was writing this book um, and also white Catholicism. And um, Latino evangelicalism in particular is where you see the most affinities between the story I tell about white evangelicalism and kind of militant masculinity. And I think perhaps not coincidentally, that's where we see higher numbers of support for Trump um, in in terms of uh, uh, Latinos, um, looking particularly at at Latino evangelicalism. And and there you see also kind of cultural affinities between a culture of machismo and, and then these religious teachings. In Black Protestantism, uh, I talked to the number of people as I was writing this, and again, you know, I'm a historian, and so I have my specialties, and I, and my specialty is um, uh, more white Christianity in in terms of my training. So I try to talk about things that I know a lot about, but then keep an eye on other other traditions and check in with scholars um, elsewhere. Um, what I had seen is that in the Black Church, there is more, um, relatively speaking, more of an in, uh, emphasis on fatherhood in terms of um, uh, Christian masculinity and less of this militancy calling it Christian. But I've also heard from a number of um, Black Christians since this book has come out saying, thank you, because we have a problem over here we need to deal with as well, right? And so that I I just don't have the expertise, but I I would trust people um, who do have the expertise and on the inside to be able to sift through that, I think, um, a little bit more effectively. So um, what I will say, however, is, we also have to contextualize this. So it's not just patriarchy that we're talking about, and it's not even just militant masculinity that we're talking about. In the story I tell, these things are linked to white Christian nationalism, right? And so that's going to be a big difference. If you're going to look to Black Protestant communities, you are not going to, I mean, obviously the white Christian nationalism, but Christian nationalism looks entirely different. It's more of a prophetic tradition, which is really another thing entirely. Um, And so when you have white Christian nationalism, this idea of Christian America linked to militant masculinity, that's really the story that I'm telling. And that is something that is quite distinctively white evangelical. And you'll see a parallel kind of uh, version in conservative white Catholicism as well. Um, and, And so, so, you know, categories are important here. Really, that's really, really helpful. And this is my other book that I've, you know, been rereading. I kind of have have read uh, Taking America Back for God. The uh, Whitehead and Perry really dive into like Christian nationalism and it overlaps with some of your themes. Uh, And I, you know, as as we um, think of nationalism um, and Christian nationalism in particular, what what are uh, some of the handholds that you feel like you, you're finding hope? You know that folks are beginning to identify sort of the the principality and power of this, and 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 um, and and what what are some ways forward? You know, because I think you start to name some of those, and there's others that are going identifying the problems a good place to start. <laughs> but then you know where do we go from here? 
Yeah, I have to confess that as as a historian, this is what we do. We just we identify the problems. And so I'm in this awkward position of having to, you know, tell the white evangelical church what what to do next. So that I so I, I'm always a little sheepish uh to move in that direction. But what I what I will say is that that's all right. I, you just put on your prophetic hat. You just come on, come right. on. I mean, if you're gonna ask me, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what to do. So um I Again, I, I so I had very little hope when I finished this book, and I've told this story before. But when I it, it was a real kind of crunch to get it um, into production in time to come out in advance of the 2020 election, and that was our goal, and it needed to be. And um, so time was really tight, and we're just about ready to like wrap it up. And my editor sends me this email saying, "One more thing, um, it's really depressing, and you can't leave your readers here." Like you, you can't do this to your readers. And so he's like, you got to give us something to work with in your conclusion. And so I, I like, I, I sat with it for hours and I looked at it, looked at the manuscript again. And then I just wrote him. I said, I'm sorry, I've got nothing. Like I feel as bad as you do right now. Like this is not good. It's not good at all. And he said, okay, I respect that. And then, um, the next day or two days later, I get another email from him saying, just give us something, anything. And so um, that's when I gave him the last sentence of the book. Um, you know, what was once done might also uh, be undone. And honestly, like I was embarrassed to send that. Uh, I, I just thought this is, this is so feeble, right? It's not enough. Um, but he's like, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> and the book went into production. And um but, but there is power there. There is truth. And now, and I'm seeing it. And I'm so glad that sentence is there because I know so many readers are holding on to it because they didn't understand, even though this was their life story. I mean, I hear so many stories that like in great detail show how their lives mapped onto the story I tell in, in this book. And yet they find it shocking. And, and that's something I've had to kind of grapple with. Like, how could you not be aware, right? How could you not um, be clued in? And, and, and I've done some thinking on that, but, but mostly like now that they see, now that they mm-hmm. see, they're like, uh-uh, right? What can we do now? And there is this real motivation to, to reject this. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that sentiment was there, but they didn't even like, weren't even able to articulate exactly what, what we're rejecting here, right? Patriotism seems good. And so much of this is just in the air we breathe as, you know, as white Christians, or as, you know, if you go in these evangelical spaces and, you know, I love to go into Hobby Lobby just to take the pulse of the evangelical world. And you'll see Blue Lives Matter flags for wall decor, and you'll see all this Christian nationalism decor and all of this. And it's just like Christianity, right? Until you name it. Until you hold it up and then say, is this, is this really, where did this come from? And what history does is it shows us again, things have not always been this way. So then how did they get to be this way? And people made choices, individuals, and we can isolate some of those. And then we can look at motivations and more often than not, they were making these decisions uh, in order to enhance their own power. Mm. And right. And then we can start peeling away and say, I don't think so. I don't think so. And you can get back again. This is the kind of deconstruction, not deconstructing the faith, deconstructing all the cultural baggage that has corrupted the faith. So, so good. Now I'm, I'm going to ask you a little bit of a personal question. I didn't have on your little list that I sent you. Okay. But um, I, I feel like uh, it, it would be really helpful to pe- for people to know, you know, do you, where do you have a faith community you're a part of right now? Like, are you, do you have a place where you're, finding you know a spiritual lifeline because i think there's a lot of people that are leaving something but aren't finding anything else you know? yes yes i do i have a wonderful church home it's a christian reformed congregation just down the street here uh called church of the servant so you can google it church of the servant <laughs> gun rapids um you can find our our sermons online they are beautiful i love them uh one of our pastors is from ireland and so you know she can approach religious nationalism in a in a uh in a very powerful way from a different context uh and uh it's also we have a basic english service so we have a lot of immigrants and refugees who are part of our church community and so it's it's a wonderful vibrant space where I am spiritually fed every week, uh, remotely still, hopefully in person uh, very soon again. And so, yes, I, I've been extremely fortunate to have, have this space where 
uh, you know, confessional Christianity, um, traditional liturgies, um, and, and really the, the global uh, Christian community comes together. Um, so, and I know it's hard. I know it's hard to find church homes and, you know, to get back to an issue you raised earlier, I just wanted to add um, or reinforce that this, this question for many white evangelicals, um, I think they, well, I know that they've been kind of um, um, discipled in a way that makes them think that white evangelicalism is Christianity, right? It's the most faithful Christianity. And so, um, so seeing white evangelicalism kind of crumble before their eyes feels like their faith, like Christianity itself is crumbling. And that is just not true. And so I tell people too, or it's like, how can I fix this? What can I do? I'm like, maybe you don't need to, maybe you can just go find places right now where the faith is thriving because it is mm-hmm. thriving. And maybe you need to go to the places, um, you know, the people that you've excluded from your fellowship, the people that you have, you know, maybe cross some of those racial lines, um, um, or, you know, whatever other lines you have drawn or have been drawn around your communities and go find where the faith is flourishing and, um, and just relax. And, you know, it's not up to you to fix this. Mm. Wow. Uh, you know, the, there's been a few questions that have been posted. So we've got just a few minutes left y'all and feel, feel free to like, keep posting questions. And, um, and we've got some of, yeah, there's hundreds of y'all watching on Facebook and YouTube and a bunch of folks on zoom here. So uh, throw a few questions out, but this is one of them that someone asked Kristen is, um, could you say a little bit more about economics and how capitalism and, because, you know, I think of Dr. King when he named the, tr- the three triplets of evil, right? And he named them as uh, materialism, militarism, and racism. And he said they're really interlocked. And you talk about capitalism and, and the, that, the, the role that it plays in reinforcing some of these. Do you want to say more about that? Oh, I could talk for another hour <laughs> just on this, right? On this consumer culture and how that shaped um, in so many ways, shaped the substance of evangelicalism, the substance of American Christianity. Um, whenever possible in this book, I try to make money visible. Whenever money's changing hands, I mean, you sell 4 million copies of a book. Do you know what? Well, you do know what kind of royalties that would be, right? It's not royalties yeah. that you and I have ever seen, but like, that's a lot of money. Um, these conference circuits, right? Um, this is my money changing hands. Um, your book being, uh, you know, published and distributed through Lifeway Christian books. That's a lot of money, right? That's just, um, and, and so, um, I mean, capitalism and this consumer culture, oh, let's talk radio. Let's talk, um, let's, let's talk, um, you know, televangelism, but also these organizations of the religious right, right? So much money is changing hands, the donations that come pouring in and um, loyalty, uh, which is loyalty to like the leader, but also loyalty to the brand, um, which is like consumer loyalty is often um, uh, kind of bought through stoking fear, Mm-hmm. Right through making people afraid of secular, you know, mainstream media. Don't go there. Stay within, you know, say, listen to our channels, listen to our, you know, read our books. Don't go out there. Listen to our music. Um, that's to control the message. But it's also there's a ton of profits that are at stake if you go outside the fold, right? Again, I grew up, I never listened to the top 40, uh, as we called it back in the day, right? Only Christian contemporary music, yeah. contemporary Christian music and artists corrected me recently. I have it wrong in the book. I grew up calling it Christian contemporary. Anyway, that's changed in the new, in the paperback. Uh, I digress. So uh, yeah, that this is, this is a business. Um, massive amounts of money are changing hands. And so that also means like even these, these evangelical parachurch organizations, right? These are, they're always like described as ministries, ministries, Um, but they're businesses. And so right now, what I see happening is many times, even leaders know um, they, they want to dissent. They want to speak out against Christian nationalism. They want to speak out boldly against racism, but they don't. Mm-hmm. because they don't want to lose their subscribers. They don't want to lose their donors. They don't want to, um, you know, uh, disrupt 
the ministry and and there's all kinds of justifications that 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 I hear but ultimately it's we got to keep this business afloat right for the sake of the ministry um but i think that the 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 way that um that capitalism works here means that there are an awful lot of people within white evangelicalism right now who are staying quiet who are protecting the brand and at enormous cost to Christianity yeah. and, and just to our country and to the world, frankly. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's true with our guns too, right? Uh, Henry Ford said, if you want to know how to end violence, just figure out who's profiting from yes. it. It's true exactly. of our military economy, right? That there's tons of people that are making a massive money off of Lockheed Martin, Boeing off of the, you know, Enormous. ongoing endless wars. Um, yeah. And um, but you you mentioned something that I think so important. You do this in the book too. This 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 fear, right? Some have named this white fragility, this white fear that the changing demographics of America, where the white folks, white evangelicals, are not the dominant majority of Americans. Um, and it was on the back of the first black president that there's this kind of white lash, you know, this backlash of white supremacy um, reacting to the Black Lives Matter movement, the changing demographics of Congress. So there's all of this kind of fear and fragility that's there and sort of a nostalgia, right, of let's let's go back rather than forward. And um, I, I really just think that 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 scripture that perfect love casteth out fear is, is it might sound a little cliche, but I really feel like fear and love are at war. They're at war right now in our country. Right. And whether we think about immigration or guns, the question is kind of like, who are we as a country and what would it look like if love rather than fear was the motivating force that's shaping our imagination. Right. And you talk about that some, I don't know if you want to say more about what fear, what role fear plays Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, how, how you can combat that because it's kind of hard to know yeah. how to start. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I th- I thought about opening this book actually with Marilyn Robinson's quote: uh, "Fear is not a Christian habit of mind." Which you know I love that quote, but I thought I can't because historically that's not defensible. In the history that I'm telling, fear absolutely is a Christian habit of mind, right? Um, and so I'm going to stick with the the historian's take right now and just have to spell it out. Uh, So, yes, early on, I was kind of working with this assumption that um, fear, um, fear is this kind of response to kind of naturally occurring events. So we have the demographic change. And, you know, when when we saw the evangelical support for Trump in 2016, the the kind of media narrative was uh, an evangelical narrative, actually, in the part of leadership was evangelicals were so afraid, right? You have, you do have the demographic changes and you have the, you know, threats to religious liberty. And, um, and, and so what choice did they have, but to go running into the arms of, you know, uh, their ultimate fighting champion, uh, uh, the man who would protect them, who promised to protect them. But then when I looked to the history, I realized at a certain point um, that we, we need to, to flip the script, that fear doesn't produce militancy. Um, historically, it's usually the opposite, that the <laughs> militant leaders, people like Jerry Falwell Sr., um, Mark Driscoll, right, that they are actively stoking fear in the hearts of their followers in order to justify their own militancy and consolidate their own power. Um, and, and once that clicked for me, and it really actually did in the, in the chapter where I'm describing the um, these fake ex-Muslim terrorists, right, that were all the rage post 9-11, you know, Focus on the Family was sponsoring them and CBN and, and you know, the SBC and, and stuff. And these were, this was a big deal. Turns out all these guys were frauds, like complete and utter frauds. And the people sponsoring them knew it. And they kept parading them out to tell white American Christians that Muslims were out to kill them and their children. And, um, and, and that's when I realized, right, this is not, the fear is manufactured. Mm. And, and so the fear is legitimate, uh, you know, uh, that their followers are very legitimately afraid of Muslims, of secular humanists, of liberals, of feminists, of, you know, fill in the blank. 
But I think, how do we undo this? I think the most important thing we need to do is be very curious about who is stoking the fear, mm-hmm. right? Who is manufacturing this fear? Because we can talk about, oh, the Bible says, you know, <laughs> fear not a lot, a lot. It says fear not. Um, but, but we have many leaders actively stoking fear because then people are going to donate. People are going to pledge their loyalty, right? As Driscoll said, hey, this is war. I demand absolute sacrifice and absolute loyalty. Um, Mm -hmm. So we just need to understand, uh, rethink this relationship that militancy actually requires the continual stoking of fear. So we should be much more suspicious. Wow. When you were saying that, I was, uh, I don't know why this, this occurred to me, but I, you know, when, um, when you were sharing about the, the fear and, and, and um, the things you just said, I, I was thinking when I was in um, Iraq, I was in Iraq in 2003 during the bombing of Baghdad and, you know, all of the military occupation that was happening there. But there was this one moment that I, I always remember right at Easter because it was it was around this time that we were there and um, we were having a birthday party for a young woman, 13 years old, named Amal. Her name in Arabic means hope. And as we're throwing this birthday party, the bombs start falling on Baghdad. And this was in the shock and awe campaign, you know, and as those bombs started falling, all the adults were like, all right, we got to, you know, we got to get out of here. And the kids were like, they they, they had just this fearlessness and they said, no, we have to keep the party going, you know, and a mall like hit me in the head with a balloon and we kept the party going. And I, I remember like that 13 year old, it wasn't this naivety, but it was this, this sense that no matter what they do, yes. we're going to keep the joy. We're going to keep the hope. We're going to keep the party going. Yeah. And, it, it, and it maybe isn't that surprising that it came from a 13 a year old girl named Amal, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, man. Well, anyway, I, I don't I, we've, it's been almost an hour. It flew by for me. I want to make sure I give you a chance. If there's anything else that you want to close us off with, um, I always like, you know, I hate when I when you do an interview or podcast or something, and you have something that, you know, you wanted to say that you didn't get to. So I, I sure want to thank you for this great conversation and let you have the last word if there's anything you want to say in closing, and then I'll just make a couple of announcements. Sure. Sure. Well, thank you for all of these questions, um, for, for your own work and, um, for the community that you've, that you've really cultivated here in the space. Um, I think, I think any closing thoughts would have to do with, with that, that sense of community that I'm hearing from so many, evangelicals, former evangelicals, general readers who feel really isolated right now, who feel like they are, you know, the last 30 years have been a lie. I'm hearing that from evangelical leaders, powerful evangelical leaders saying, what have I done? Um, You know, people who are thinking they need to walk away from their church communities, from their jobs. And, um, and so it is a, I think a really um, lonely time. Um, but I'm hearing from so many. So I've just started telling people that there are a lot of us on the other side or moving to the other side, right? Uh, it's not a lonely space at all. And what I found is that when I started writing on this, even before the book came out, I started connecting with other people, right? And those those relationships are incredibly life-giving. And like you say, that's where joy is. And that's also where courage is found, I think, in that community. Mm-hmm. And so I think we just have to continue to find each other and to support each other and see what we can build on the other side. So great. That was also a wonderful segue that part of uh, one of the great joys of uh, this conversation is Kristen is now uh, one of the many voices on our website at Red Letter Christians, because one of the things that we're convinced of is that part of how we change the narrative is by changing the narrators, right? And amplifying voices that have a, a, a beautiful, resilient faith uh, like Kristen. It's a gift to ha- have this conversation tonight, but you can keep hearing more from her and keep in touch with things that she's doing on our website. But also, do you want to let people know how they can keep in touch with you, Kristen, on your own socials and stuff? Sure. I'm on Twitter too much at KK Dumez. <laughs> <laughs> so that's K-K-D-U-M-E-Z, like Dumez. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, uh, Kristen Cobus Dumay. I have an author page there and I have a website, kristendumay.com, uh, where I have a, um, I post a lot of the things that I write there. 
Cool. And so we'll keep letting people know about that and, and let folks know about our website too. everybody, all y'all listening in that like part of what we're trying to do is have voices like Kristen's and really diverse voices around the country that are singing a better song, right? That are living out a Christianity that is about Jesus. And that's about justice and encountering the narrative of Christian nationalism and white supremacy. Uh, so on that note, it's um, exciting to announce that Dr. Butler is going to be our next book next month. We'll, we'll put all this on the socials, but her book, I just got it today, White Evangelical Racism. She'll be our guest the last Sunday in April. Uh, a couple other things on the horizon are we do common prayer um, from our prayer book. This, this little book here that uh, it's like 30 of us help create this daily prayer book together. And so we get together um, on the first of the month and we get to have a different guest. So the Bishop Yvette Flunder is going to be our guest on April 1st. So uh, you can prepare to join us. We're going to be going a little bit later because she's on West Coast time, but all that's on our socials. But um, and we, we record those just like tonight. Um, we're doing a couple of things around the Holy Week. I'm going to share some reflections on Good Friday when we remember Jesus's execution and uh, share a little bit about um, why that's significant, you know, uh, Jesus's execution and what it means for us today on uh, this Friday at two o'clock. I think um, that's when we're doing that. We got a great Easter concert that we're going to do on Monday, the Monday after Easter, April 5th. We've got 20 or more artists, spoken word, poetry, uh, singer, songwriters, bands that are going to sing songs of redemption, survival, resurrection, Easter songs. So um, that that's uh, on Monday night at uh, like seven o'clock, I think it is. And um, all of this stuff we're trying to do for free, uh, but we love to show some love to folks like Kristen. So if you can donate, we would love it if you do that. We're going to keep trying to offer things for free because we don't never want money to be an obstacle to folks that are leaning into conversations like this. So that means that those of us that can, you know, give 10 bucks or 20 bucks, just go uh, to our website and um, do that. If you don't mind, if you can share a little funds with us and sign up to be on our our lists and whatnot so we can keep in touch with you uh, in the future. So what a great night. Kristen, you are a gift. Your friendship's a gift. Your proclamation of uh, your faith is beautiful. So thank you for everything tonight. Thank you all for joining us and join us. Uh, keep in touch with us. So love y'all. Kristen, any closing words? No, just thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Benjamin, for your ASL translation. We'll yep. do our best to make sure that we have that in the future. So thank you. Beautiful. All right. We hope you've enjoyed this special Red Letter Christians Book Club conversation. The loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or faithful voices. We know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. So thank you for listening to the Red Letter Christians podcast, where we are aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said.